Hi, I'm Estelle. I spent a decade of my life in the area of social media influence, VIP parties, and traveling the world, but it left me feeling empty, lost, and longing for something more. Now you're listening to The Purposepreneur, where I have meaningful conversations with awesome people about life, purpose, and creativity. We try to figure out who we are and what to do with our one amazing life. I hope this helps you in some way as well. Let's begin. Hi guys, so I have Andrew with me. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to hear more about Zook's business of creativity over the last year. So Zook is not only a stomping ground for me and many of us, but it's a legacy name. It's a pioneer in the party scene in Singapore and in Asia, right? So can an institution like that be shaken or stirred in a time of crisis? I don't know, right? So we're going to chat with Andrew about the shaking that they have just gone through this difficult period and the incredible pivots, collaborations, team efforts behind their work as well. You know, so ultimately, Andrew, you know, Zook is such an incredible creative business. I really hope your insights and lessons will help other creatives and entrepreneurs and businesses through this time as well. Yeah, I mean, whatever I can help, I think uh, it's, we're all just a community in some ways. So I think anyone can, whatever we can do to help each other, I think, especially for this challenging time, I think I'm happy to kind of work towards Right. Yeah. And to start off, maybe you could share with me a little bit of your personal and your career journey that led you to this point. So we were just chatting about how you have a hospitality background. I was at Fullerton Bay Hotel taking care of, you know, this rooftop and I had million dollar revenue uh, targets and they wanted to be like coup d'etat at that time and uh, now Salavi. And, you know, we, we know the reward and also like the hustle behind hospitality. So maybe you could unpack that and share a little bit you know, of your career journey before you came to Zook and how that's translated or helped you in Zook as well? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I graduated from university, I, I got a degree in uh, psychology. So I think for myself, um, when I left, I wanted to do something where I could travel a lot, um, work in different teams, um, work in different places and, and just, you know, kind of uh, interact with people, which is kind of a bit... Um, a bit ironic seeing as I'm quite an introvert when I later, when I later did the Myers Briggs um, kind of uh, that test. Oh, nice. Uh, also, yeah, so it's great. What's your, uh, what's, your M, what's your MBTI? They asked me, but I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to dig it out. I did it like three, right. four years ago. Right. It really is like it's the most introvert. It's like right in the corner right. somewhere. Right. Um, uh, it can so change. I, it can change. It's probably changed over the last one year too, right? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so my first job actually... Um, was a room service waiter. So I, um, it was at this hotel called the Metropolitan uh, Hotel in uh, London. And uh, it was actually owned by a Singaporean company called Como, which actually Como here in Singapore is quite, quite famous. They have quite a few hotels. And uh, it was a very happening hotel. It's called, it had the Met Bar, which is a very happening London um, kind of bar. It had Nobu inside as well. So it was a very happening restaurant. Everyone was dressed in Armani um, and it was very fashionable. So, you know, I was, you know, my first job as a room service waiter, I would, a lot of times I would go up and meet kind of celebrities, you know, there was like sometimes Robert De Niro, there was a guy who was like Superman. And um, for someone Fun. who just came out, it was, you know, very daunting because you're, right. you know, seeing people in the movies and suddenly you're in front of them, but you're in a certain, you know, you have to be very professional because you're in that service industry. Um, and uh, I think 
it was a very physically draining job. Not not only mentally draining because you're literally just like polishing the cutlery, you're having to get the food, and you're literally just going up and down with your in the breakfast all the way to lunch until dinner, and sometimes twenty four hours the kind of room service twenty four hours, right? And uh, I thought at that time it really kind of taught me how to. Um, understand a little bit more about just the full workings of how, what happens in FOB because I think something that um, you learn later on is that you know we're all cogs in this system right so it's very important that you know even the smallest things make a big difference in terms of the whole structure and kind of workings of the entire company right so if the room service doesn't work then you know if someone doesn't polish the cutlery you won't be able to get the cutlery to go into the breakfast service and the breakfast service can't happen which is an integral part of you know what the F&B service for the hotel is um, altogether. Um, and uh, I did that for about two years. Um, and then I was put in a uh, management training program uh, with Como. So they put me in three different hotels, two in UK and one in Bangkok, um, where I rotated around all the different, um, uh, all the different kind of departments. Uh, and the one I enjoyed the most was actually uh, being a bartender um, in the Met Bar in Bangkok. So uh, they put me in the Metropolitan Bangkok. I was a bartender there. Um, and I remember the first day I went in there, um, and it was, this was after doing you know, all the different departments in the UK, and uh, I couldn't speak a word of Thai, and all the managers and the staff couldn't speak uh, English that well. And, uh, but they were so family-like. They were so welcoming. They were so happy to see me. And you know, after each shift, we would just get a bottle of whiskey and they would just pour it, you know, five seconds down my throat. And, and, and suddenly everyone was like, like family, you know, and, you know, it was almost like you didn't need to have converse in your own language, but you had that sense of community and working together and just giving the best kind of experience you could to the guests, you know. So I was really happy at that point in time, making drinks and just meeting people. Um, I felt like I had a knack for kind of connecting with people in a certain manner. Um, so that kind of went on. Uh, for another kind of year and a half, and then at that time, there was uh, there was uh, the prime minister at the time was actually getting ousted. There's Thaksin at the time, so I wasn't able to get a work visa to carry on at the Metropolitan, and I didn't want to go back to the UK. So I um, uh, went to China to learn Mandarin, and during that time, the old CEO of Como connected me with the regional vice president of Four Seasons in Hong Kong. So um, I flew down, and uh, he basically offered me a ma another management training, comp um, management trainee kind of position. And this was weird because I was almost like 26, 27 at the time, and I was becoming a management trainee again. You know, most people come management trainee when they're 21. So I was kind of feeling myself: well, Am I going back backwards, or am I doing the same thing again that I just did with this other hotel company? But I think the Four Seasons way, and they're one of the best, you know, hotel operators in the world is that you haven't trained under their system, you haven't trained at all. So I had to go back again to, you know, room service. Um, they put me in a big stint in housekeeping. I was in housekeeping for a year and a half. Um, and, um, you know, once again, you did all the training again, right from the bottom, from, you know, being the, the guy who opens the door to making beds to, um, and, and I think to be honest, in four seasons in Hong Kong, that's where I really learned a lot of the structure um, of working in a bigger conglomerate, I guess. Uh, but also, um, Como would be considered quite a new hostage company, even though it's you know incredibly, incredibly good. Uh, but Four Seasons really had that tradition of service. You know, they have service standards and excellence that you know they've they call the golden rules, like stuff like you know treat everyone the way you would like to be treated yourself. Um, and these kind of things really uh, got instilled in me at a very, um, I want to say, young age at time, but at that age to kind of push on how I wanted to come as a leader moving forward. 
Um, and it was, you know, tough, tough, uh, tough four and a half years. Um, I basically, you know, went through all the different departments. I ended up um, uh, as a, after my management program, I ended up as guest relations manager, which is similar to, I guess, what you what you did where you looked after all the VIPs. Um, I think that part of it was also important because you once again knew how to gauge, you know, people's reactions, their moods. Um, empathy was very important. Patience was very important. All Intuition, these, all, yeah. yeah, soft touches, right? Soft skills. All these, all these yeah. things that kind of later on, um, you work in a much bigger manner. I guess now that I'm, I'm you know, speak to business leaders and stuff. I think, you know, it, back then, obviously, it's a different dynamic. But you know, I could tell, for example, you know, when someone came in, like, you know, this guy in a good mood, he's in a bad mood. What, do you, what I can kind of feel what he needs. You know, is there a way that I can brighten up his stay? All these things um, were things that I felt that I learned doing that that position as a guest relationship manager. Um, then I went on to do a bit of business development um, as a business development manager. And then after that, I went on to this group called Privé Group. Um, so I was poached by the CEO and, and owner at the time, this uh, gentleman called John Rana. Um, and at the time he was also in nightlife. So he basically was trying to expand his nightlife brand, uh, Privé, into more of a lifestyle brand as well. So for me, that was extremely exciting. Um, I think I, it was a big jump because you went from something which was quite a big company, but like a small fish um, into, a, I wouldn't say like a, like a, a, a small pond, but it was a, it was definitely a smaller company. It's kind of more family run. Um, Is that the same doing, Privé group that does Privé in Singapore? No, separate. Okay. So they, there's gotcha. a group here, but there's a Privé group in, uh, in, in Hong Kong as well. So, gotcha. um, so this one was, uh, had a club called uh, Privé and a club called Levels. Um, uh, now the club is called Bungalow, um, and uh, they were just expanding into F and B at the time. So the opening wow. Japanese restaurants, um, and uh, for me that yeah. was very exciting. It was a lot more entrepreneurial, you know. Like right. you know, I had a lot more say. So I came on as the group director of operations, and then um, afterwards, about a year, I think I got uh, promoted to CEO of that group. So I was basically John's right hand man to see how we can expand. Um, and uh, it, was, it was extremely exciting. Like we, one of our projects, we. Um, found a chef from uh, um, Noma, right? He was the development chef for Noma, and we brought him to Hong Kong, and we basically, from the ground up, we did a fine dining restaurant. And for us, that was quite a big jump because we've only done like nightclubs in the past, and we learned we had so many, so many mistakes. Um, but within six months, we 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 got a mission staff for the restaurant, which was, you know, great in terms of the branding of the group, because when you're kind of like a one trick pony, you're basically just nightclubs, right? But suddenly if you have a mission style restaurant, then um, you mean that you're kind of more into that kind of lifestyle portfolio, right? Um, and uh, that was for me, like an extremely passionate project for myself because I, I love food. Um, I love food so much. And, uh, you know, I, you know, doesn't I, I, look I, like I, it. <laughs> that's because I work out right. a lot as well. Yes, kind of definitely. But I would love to, I would love to hear as well, right? So with your career, it was very fast tracked. You know, you do seem to have been promoted very quickly and you ro rose through the ranks very quickly in a lot of your jumps. Would you say it's a bit of luck, a bit of chance, a bit of timing? Was it, what, what are some of the values and disciplines as well? Do you think that, you know, you learned from your previous jobs that, that gave or opened doors for these opportunities as well? Yeah, I, I definitely feel that um, luck plays a kind of a definitely a factor there. I mean, right time, right place, I think is very important, right? I mean, you know, um, 
I'm kind of currently reading this book called The Psychology of Money, and it talks about how you have can have two people, um, and Bill Gates was in this, you know, he just happened to be at the school where they bought this computer and this computer, he got so into it. And if he didn't go, if he didn't go to that school and they didn't have that computer at that exact time, um, things could be completely different, right? And he wow. acknowledged that himself and says, you know, it was because of those circumstances that came together um, that, you know, can make things happen for you, right? And don't get me wrong, I think obviously you have to be the right person at the right time as well. Um, but I think, you know, being the right time, right place definitely is a factor there. Um, interesting enough, um, I have, in my last two jobs, I've actually been um, uh, poached by people that I know very well. So they've been like friends or, um, you know, or, or acquaintances that become friends. Um, so I count loyalty, for example, as a very, um, big factor for myself as well. I think I think you need to have that chemistry um, with that person that you're either hiring or, or tiring you as well. And I think that trust factor is very important as well because you need to be able to trust that person um, who's going to be able to look out for you because at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, there's only one person who's your direct reporting manager that probably has the most say um, uh, in, in basically how your career goes, right? Um, and even at Four Seasons, when I went in there with, with uh, like I said, the regional vice president, he became my mentor as well. Um, so he basically picks mentees from out. Um, so he'll pick high potential mentees that, and knowing that person's kind of looking out for you and knowing he has your kind of career at his you know, best interest makes a huge, huge difference, I think, um, in where I feel that I'd want to go. For example, I've been offered you know, jobs in the last kind of five years where they were able to kind of put, you know, double the amount of money down for me, right? And and for me, it's 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 very important that the person who I'm working for, um, you know, you have that connection, you have that trust, you have that um, loyalty because at the end of the day, you know, if you work for someone that, you know, you just feel is going to throw money to you and says like, oh, you know what, I'm going to replace you with this be guy. Be my puppet. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, be a puppet or, or even like kind of, right. you know, I'm going to replace this guy who's currently working with you and you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, what if he does the same thing to me like in two years time, right? right. You know, so right. there is a certain type of integrity and and um, almost like morals about how I want to kind of work for that person. And, and I think that's also about how you kind of build the culture of your, of your company, your brand as well. Um, so um, I think, you know, these things uh, definitely... Um, you know, right time, right place, and, and just that chemistry that, that, you know, hiring manager, I think is extremely important. Right. Well, speaking of brand, what do you think makes Zook a strong or trustworthy brand? And also, what do you look for in a team that you assemble when you're running and leading a team? I think for Zook, right, I mean, it's, 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 it's something for me which is extremely special because I've never seen in my entire life, and I've, and I've, now worked in nightlife for probably over a decade. How nostalgic and emotional, and not even just like a not even a nightlife brand, but just a brand can be to a community, right? And you know, this transcends anything that I've seen. The only place I would ever say that has probably something a little bit similar is a club called Pasha and uh, the people in Ibiza. Ibiza, I've been yes. there. 
Yes. Very, very, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous to me, right? Because we're at these tiny tables, like these guys mm. are spending 5,000, 10,000 euros. So you, you mm. have a table, right? But it's not the tables you get in, in like the Singapore clubs, in the members clubs or Filter or, or right, Pangea and, and, and Zook, but they're tiny and they're like these little wooden tables, right? Just because it's a beach, it's a beach style kind of environment and club. I just think it's hilarious. So you have... Right. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but yes, the culture, the atmosphere, the entertainment, the hospitality, it's incredible. Yeah. They almost have like a culture built on nightlife, you know, in Ibiza, right? right? Um, here in Singapore, it's it's a little bit different, but there's still that emotional connection to, mm. to right? It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I heard when, you know, when I speak to some, some kind of mothers and fathers, they say, um, you know, I'd only let my child go to Zouk when he's 18, right? No other clubs, but it can be Zouk, right? And if they experience the music festival for the first time, it has to be Zouk out, you know, because they kind of trust in the brand that, because they kind of grew up with the brand as well, you know, and, and, and it's almost that it transcends generations here because it's almost 30 years old. So, you know, we've had like, you know, parents, you know, almost going out with their children. Actually, we have parents going out with their children in the club, you know, last year and stuff. And, and I think it's because we've looked after almost the Singaporean institution of the nightlife all these years that that trust has grown and grown and grown to the point now where it's such a, it's just such a kind of nostalgic and emotional brand now here, the Singapore community. And for me, that's something that is incredibly, incredibly special. Um, so, uh, sorry, what was the second part of the question? Um, oh, so I was, I asked what, what are some of the qualities that you look for in building a strong team? Yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, um, they need to understand and be excited about the vision that we're trying to portray and where this group is going, right? And, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, I've been in this role now for about um, close to five years. But, you know, in that period of time, we've gone through so many transitions. You know, it's it's almost like we were a, a startup at the beginning, but like, a you know, even though we're 20, you know, five years, we're still, I still felt like it was like a very family run company, right? And then I needed a certain um, type of person to kind of help lead that and to make it a bit more corporatized, right? And then, then we went for another kind of transition towards maybe like year two, year three, where it was all about solidifying our base here in Singapore and, and optimizing our revenue streams and looking a little bit towards the future, right? And then last year, it was really kind of the pivot to where we're going into like FMB, we're going to like lifestyle, we're going, we're becoming more regionalized and now we're becoming more globalized, right? So I think for myself, the same type of person, um, I mean, sometimes you can, but mostly the same type of person might not be the, the person you need for each different stage, right? So we've had, for example, turnover and, you know, high turnover, sometimes the management level, right? Because different types of people have been needed for different parts of our journey, right? So right now we're very much at growth stage, right? And for a growth stage, um, you need people who are really forward thinking, dynamic, agile thinkers, um, you know, and especially during this pandemic last year, right? Where, you know, you had to be an agile thinker, right? You had to be able to think outside the box. You had to be able to execute quickly. You know, you had to be able to kind of um, manage your team in, a world, team in a way where they were able to kind of understand the instructions above, but also kind of bring in their own input as well. So all these things, um, I think, have been quite crucial um, towards building up to where we are today. Right. And also, like you mentioned, Zook has gone through many transitions and 
you guys got acquired as well, right? So it came under the Genting Group. So Lincoln, the founder of Zoot, sold it, sold the business and it's under Genting Group. So, so and congratulations as well about Vegas. So there'll be Zook, right, in Vegas. So one that will be interesting. I mean, I'm also wondering what the standout business strategy is there as well, right? Because there's so many other clubs there. There's Tal, there's Hakasan, there's Omnia, there's Maki. So is there a business strategy is it, are you feeding the hungry Asian ballers? Is it, you know, just one of the moving parts that Genting will be running because yeah, are they so running hos- integrated resorts or hospitality? Yeah. yeah, so I think for us um, in Vegas, you know, it's it's really going to be the pinnacle of, I feel, um, we're really kind of putting our flag in the U.S., right? And we're not going to anywhere in the U.S. We're going to Las Vegas, which is the entertainment capital of the world, right? And like you said, all the big players there, all the big boys are there, right? So um, for me, it's almost like a sense of personal pride that we do well there because yeah. coming from someone who's Asian, also coming you know, from someone from Singapore, where Zook is a Singaporean company, I want to show um, the people also in the US that we can also bring an extremely incredible experience to their shores, right? I think what uh, people need to understand is that we're not just a standalone club coming into Las Vegas, right? We are part of a 4.3 billion US dollar integrated resort. So this is going to be a partnership with Resorts of Las Vegas. Um, and it's going to, it's going to be, an, it's going to be the first big opening on the strip uh, in more than a decade. And it's going to be opposite the wind. There's going to be two towers of hotels. There's going to be a casino. There's going to be, you know, massive pools. It's literally going to be an amazing. So it's not. And w- when we come into a partnership with Resorts of Las Vegas, it's not like we're a standalone club as well. We are coming with them hand in hand. So my team there, for example, also work on projects that Resorts of Las Vegas are doing, um, and vice versa. They will support us in all the in all the different aspects that we're trying to kind of work there. So we have about 120,000 square feet of space there. So to put that in perspective, it's um, almost four times the space that we have here in in, uh, in Singapore. We have a massive beach club. We have a nightclub there. Um, we have uh, you know our Fuhu, our kind of uh, Asian modern uh, vibe dining restaurant, Red Tail, which we have one in Malaysia and Singapore. Um, and we're also going to do an Asian food street there, which I think is going to be extremely exciting. Very um, fun. So it's also a bit almost of bringing like part of the Zouk culture and the Singapore culture to the experience yeah, as well. We're going to put combo nights there. But, but, but I think well, we're not going there also thinking to ourselves, you know, we can do everything, for example. We are right. going there and I had like the best people on the ground. I've had the best people in Hakkasan. I've had the best people from Win. you know, because at the end of the day, I don't know the Vegas scene as well as they do, but I'm sure we can bring a certain part of Asian hospitality, hospitality to their table and kind of combine that to kind of create a really, really great experience. So I think these two, um, you know, coupled with the fact that you're part of a much bigger integrated resort with world-class facilities, I think it's going to be, you know, a win-win situation. That's great. I'd love to talk more about the pivot that Zook has gone through, right? So under your leadership, Zook has pivoted very well through this crisis. And I would love to hear maybe some of the personal and business challenges, the process, the lessons you have learned through the COVID period as well. So maybe you can take me back to a moment, right? Maybe in March, where imagine you and your team are sitting around a table and, you know, nothing's happening. Everyone's waiting for the government to give news of what's happening and the, and and the restrictions and you know you you come to this point where you realize okay we need to do something about this right nightlife is not going to open and it's not going to be the same and we need to do something 
maybe you could take me back to that moment and how you and the team have created and executed and innovated and pivoted and adapted from there. Yeah, actually, I can remember the time quite well. Um, it was actually um, because to the time when we actually closed the club, to the time when the circuit breaker happened, was not a very long time. I think it was one or two weeks, right? Um, and um, I remember there was different parts of kind of emotion that came up during that time. And I think one of the emotions that came out was a sense of helplessness, right? Because um, I remember the time they were doing um, subsidies as well. And, and I remember Nightlife not being in any of the subsidies. And I was thinking to myself, like, why were we the first one to close and most likely be the last one to open, but we are not, you know, part of this subsidy scheme, you know, this job support scheme, right? Um, and I felt that was, you know, very, very unfair, you know, and you're kind of like rallying and going, why, 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 why is this happening to us, you know, Zoo? Um, and, uh, but then you kind of, you know, and I remember like, kind of being at home and and this was during circuit breaker and you're kind of like trying to replay these um these feelings in your head and 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 realizing but then you kind of kind of snap out of it a little because you start looking at the much broader perspective of the world in general and you realize that there are people in much 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 worse situations you know industries in much much worse situations like you know countries in much much worse situations and for, there was a turning point there where we realized that, you know, we do need to help ourselves in a way, you know, it's not just about relying on the government to kind of, you know, of course they didn't end up helping us a lot, but we had to kind of show them that we can innovate past this, right? And I remember calling my, you know, um, my CFO um, at the time and, and also my legal and I said, guys, you know, um, the first pivot was really changing capital from a club into a restaurant. And that actually happened. Um, we went we went there very, very early. So obviously now everyone's doing it, right? But I think we were almost like a week or two weeks into Circuit Breaker. And I and I and I gave them I gave them a call and I said, Look, I don't think Nightlife is gonna open anytime soon, right? I mean, I think a lot of my team were thinking that we're gonna open it like in June or something like that. And I said, look, it's not gonna happen. Um, the way things are going, the way the rhetoric from the government is happening they're going to see this as, you know, the industry they want to open last, right? Not the one they're going to open first. But I do feel that the F&B industry is going to have to open sooner rather than later because people cannot um, just, I don't think they're going to be, you know, all the restaurant industry is a massive, much more big industry than, than, than nightlife, but it's also kind of a staple that people need to be able to go out and eat because not everyone can cook at home, right? So I said to him, um, you know, is there a way that we can actually try to convert capital um our club lounge um, into a restaurant um and we were kind of brainstorming and then and then i think alex my cfo said oh maybe we can just actually just extend our kitchen down in Redtail up into capital right um and i said that's a great idea let's see if we can do that and then you know then the cog started working right and then you know the team the team kind of went out there and they started speaking to authorities and trust me at the beginning it was extremely difficult because you know the authorities were had much more bigger worries in their mind than to, than to hear about Zoo, the nightclub trying to pivot to a restaurant, right? But I think, um, you know, we are Zook and we do have some, you know, clout and, and we were trying to show them that we are trying to do something different. We want to survive past this. We want to innovate. And they and they kept saying, the government saying that they want us to adapt as well. Um, so, you know, after jumping a lot through a lot of hoops, having to kind of, you know, 
you know, add people on LinkedIn and stuff. You know, I, I was basically, my team executed flawlessly, right? I mean, I have to admit that during that time, all the strategies that, you know, we came up, they really did an amazing job executing. I was more um, behind the scenes, giving support and trying to work with the authorities to kind of jump through some of these loopholes because, you know, sometimes a team would come back and say, you know, this ministry, you know, we haven't heard from this ministry, I haven't heard that ministry. And I said, let me see what I can do right now. Try to go and speak to, you know, the, the CEO of that ministry. Like, and I'll just, I wouldn't know them to be honest. I would just, you know, message them on my LinkedIn and be like, look, is it possible we can have some help? We're not trying to do anything different. Uh, we're not trying to do anything kind of strange here. We just want to basically make sure that we have some revenue streams, um, you know, through this tough time. Um, and actually each pivot that we did kind of, in some ways either grew from an original idea or they came from just the success from the last idea, right? And and I think, uh, you know, that was- It was, was a that very step-by-step sort of it approach was, as well, it was, right? It was, it was, it was, you know, and then the restaurant, we opened the restaurant and everyone was like, you know, really excited about the restaurant. We were thinking, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's, and then my mom, one of my team was like, oh, let's make the whole zoo into a restaurant. I was like, no, 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 guys, let's, we can't make the whole zoo restaurant. That'll be like the biggest restaurant in Singapore, right? And we don't have a kitchen. We have the smallest kitchen in Singapore. So, so. Right. And then I, think you- I, I love the hook of nostalgia, right? Because, you know, you found a little tenant there and you built on that. And then that's where the cinema concept came about as well. Yeah. So the cinema, yeah. I mean, the spinning concept came about because. Um, I was in quite a lot of business federation meetings and I, I realized the fitness industry was also, um, you know, going through a really hard time as well because they just couldn't get people, you know, because you had to kind of book your time, you know, just people couldn't go to the gym. Right. right. So I said, to, I said, to, I said to, you know, there might be a way maybe we can work together with some of these industries to see if we can do something special. Right. And, you know, we had an idea of partnering with one of these gyms to basically come up with a spinning experience. Right. right. And, by the end of I'm sure I saw I saw that Ben Yap loves that you know because he gets to work out every day now. Just joking. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, maybe like once a month. Then. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yes. yeah, but, but right. No, but he's. Like, if you don't say, mind yeah. me asking, how do you choose your partners, right? Because there's so many fitness brands out there who would love the support of Zook. Was it a matter of fastest fingers first, and also the fact that maybe this brand absolute cycle they had a tech platform which they could do to manage the booking so it's quite easy and seamless that zoo came in as a venue partner right i'm just i'm just assuming that they probably handled quite a bit of the back-end bookings and logistics as well submits the process to you is that kind of what happens yeah it's definitely a combination of things i mean when we look at it we look at it obviously from a pnl perspective right so okay. they will come up and because we had four studios i guess um vying to kind of work with us and each one will have their own own pitch right and and uh you know we looked at the financials we looked at their uh, customer demographic they would look at their brand uh we would look at you know um their instructors they looked at the management team so all these were taken into account before we chose um absolute and to be honest we've been extremely happy with them um it's been a great partnership and we have almost like over 500 people spinning every day you know which is a huge different demographic than we've ever had before you know you know right in terms of fitness, right um yeah and then the, i guess the cinema as well i guess came about because we have this amazing screen right and and we thought why don't we kind of complement all the different touch points for the cinema together right and you know when you come to the cinema you have the decoration you have the food that matches you can you know when there's a fire scene in the in the in the movie you can put like red lights everywhere it, it does kind of elevate that experience um and the last thing we did actually was we pivoted with uh, lazada so we actually did a partnership where we made one of our 
clubs into a live streaming studio. So they basically live stream them pretty much every day, uh, which has been also been really great. So I think all these things, you know, uh, coupled with, you know, the job support scheme and the help from the government um, and also landlord has allowed us to kind of keep afloat during this time. Right. I have so much love and respect for the Zook brand. And I'm, I know a lot of people do as well, but I'd love to offer you a different perspective as well, right? So there's also been a lot of frustration on the ground. So I also just want to give a bit of voice to the other people who have been affected by the closure, by all the nightlife in the bars. So there has been, like say, an article by Life in Up, Pedro, where, yeah. okay, so the title of it was, you know, clubs in Singapore are not taking part in the pilot scheme after all, right? Unsurprisingly. And also I'd just like to maybe read a friend's Facebook post and yeah, I would love to hear your response to it as well. So Adrian Wee, uh, Eat Me Pop Tart, who's also known as DJ Wee Like Me says, nightlife is probably the most overlooked, most misunderstood industry in Singapore, right? The pilot program is an as is ineffective as it is ridiculous, very expensive, silly mandates, impossible closing hours, promoters and people like us are hit worse, especially those who depended their livelihoods on during this time. We are way further down the food chain and we obviously can only operate efficiently when outlets are allowed to run their clubs to full capacity. And that will take a long time before promoters can start functioning again. So I think I, think I would love to also hear, yeah, I think a lot of people look to Zook as an institution and as a brand that we love to be a sort of lighthouse through a difficult time as well. And I know there's limited resources and priorities with a business, but with those who are on the ground, like creatives, the DJs, the bartenders, the promoters and service staff who are struggling in this difficult time, do you have any thoughts about or feedback of what could help them or has there been any measures or efforts to engage the stakeholders or people on the ground? Yeah, no, I mean, in all honesty, like, I think this time, this COVID time last year is probably the toughest time the nightlife industry has ever faced, ever, right? I mean, and I was just with, um, you know, uh, Singapore Tourism Board last week, and I, and I, and I, and they, they agree, right? And, and, but you can understand from the government's perspective, especially now with so many countries going through a second, third, and fourth wave, nightlife yeah. itself has not been, um, well portrayed, let's just say, because it is literally the antithesis of everything which is COVID, right? We want people to be together, we want people socializing, we want people to um, interact, right? Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm the biggest proponent of wanting that to come back, but I also need, we also need to make sure that it comes back in a safe way. Um, if you ask me, um, is the pilot, you know, a feasible business option, I would say definitely not, right? And that's one of the reasons why Zook is not participating in it because we find that we can make more revenue from our current revenue streams than if we were to partake in the pilot, right? Um, are you gonna, if you asked me, will we partake in the pilot in the future? I think yes, but only when it becomes a feasible business option for us to partake in, right? And, and that would mean balancing out three things, right? One would be, you know, the safety of the guests and, and the staff. Um, two, the experience of the guests, because obviously having 50 people inside a room is not going to be amazing when you have a space for like a thousand. And obviously third, which is the, you know, the viable business stream, right? So a viable revenue stream. So all three of these things need to make sense before we partake in it, right? And I think right now, out of those three, it 
basically, um, I think only the first option is basically being catered for, which is safety, right? Um, saying that, I can understand that they don't want to go. I always knew that it was going to be a pilot and that they would probably work, um, continue and evolve that pilot to get to a point where it was, it was, you know, right. But I think in the beginning, it was just, it was. Um, Do you think so, that there's a bit of an expectation from the people in nightlife that Zoo would help them push through some of the, some of the direction or to be able to help them engage government or stakeholders on, on their behalf, given that nightlife has been so hit? And we do, um, you know, like, I, I think to be honest, whatever we can do for Zook, I'm sure will also help for the larger community as well. Right. Um, Trickle down effect. Yeah. It will. And, and to be honest, even the last year, I would like to think that some of the pivoting that we've done also helps with some of the nightlife community as well, because I do believe that after we pivoted to a restaurant, there were other bars that pivoted to restaurants and there were other, I even hear of like other places trying to like karaoke is trying to pivot to a cinema, for example. Right. So there's obviously some inspiration right. that, being grabbed right. upon. Um, and that's, I think for us, it's hugely gratifying um, to kind of be able to evolve this industry in the right way. Um, I think also to one of your earlier questions on how, you know, some of these DJs and creatives can, can, can kind of look through this period of time is try not to, you can't, you can't believe, one of the worst things I feel at this point in time is to kind of keep on thinking to yourself, um, I'm just going to wait it out. I'm just going to wait it out because at the end of the day, this, the way this pandemic has progressed is that we haven't been able to um, get an end date to it. You know, it's not like, right. you know, you know, there's no certainty. Yeah. Moving goalposts at the end of the day yeah. as well. Right. If I right. knew last, I thought last year that I was going to open in June and just waited to June. And I kept on saying, I'm going to wait till July and wait till like, I wouldn't have any staff right now. You know, we would be burning through so much cash. Right. right? But, you know, with the staff here in Singapore, in, in, in Clark Key in Singapore, you know, we've had DJs who become lighting technicians. I have some of my um, uh, some of my maintenance people now cooking flatbread. I have my security being runners for the restaurant. You know, I have my DJs learning how to use live Lazada. So they're constantly upskilling themselves to the point where they, you know, even when this finishes, they'll have so much repertoire skills that they can really be able to go beyond what they were their normal job kind of task was, right? And obviously there are staff who have not been able to adapt, right? And these are the ones that have found it very, very frustrating, you know, and 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 in some respect, you know, have found it very discouraging that, you know, other people have been adapting, you haven't been adapted, but you need to be able to, because at this point in time, nothing, you know, time is not gonna wait for you. You know, it's, it's you have to seize the moment. You have to be able to um, create opportunities for yourself, right? And I believe that also when you create opportunities for yourself, new opportunities will come you know, in your way as well. Um, so I think, you know, for a lot of these, you know, um, you know, creates and DJs, it will de- nightlife, nightlife will definitely come back and your skill set will still be there, right? But at this point in time, you need to be able to look past that, that date as a fixed date and just continue to make, you know, improve yourself during this time as well. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm just reminded, not, not every problem can be solved easily by a pivot. But it's true, we can repurpose and we can adapt and we can overcome and we can expand our skill sets as well. Do you have any other practical handles of leadership, communication, people management or advice that you can offer creatives and entrepreneurs and businesses who are going through pivots at this time? 
Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's a very broad, broad question. Um, I, th uh, I think um, it's, for me, it's, uh, I honestly believe that, you know, back a year and a half ago, you don't know what to do, right? But you need to keep, you need to try. You need to try at least something, right? And if the first thing doesn't work, right, then you need to continue trying. Like I'm, I'm saying, even though we've got all these pivots that have, um, you know, have done well and not let's say done done okay well, and you know, have a lot of media attention. I can tell you now that there were a lot of ideas that didn't work, right? You just didn't hear about it, right? And right. and um, you know, I think a lot of you know some some other you know um, people say, oh, it's because Zook has you know um, you know money to kind of put, but we didn't actually, because a lot of things actually, we didn't actually spend very much money on doing anything in terms of the outlet. For example, Capital Kitchen, we all we did was buy some black cloths to put over the tables, right? And everything else was there already. Like even for the cinema, we just basically just moved our tables around and then to face the cinema and stuff. So I think, you know, you don't, when you look at these kind of ideas and pivots, and, and you're exactly right, you know, you not everything can be solved by pivoting. Okay? I can tell you now that if we did not have the support from the government, um, and the support from the landlord that all these pivots that we did, we would still be losing a lot of money. It's only with their support that we managed to kind of stay afloat. But I can also say that if we didn't do the pivots and we just had the job support, we'd also be losing a lot of money. So it, it's almost like two and two have to come together to be able to kind of get through this time, right? Um, and I think at the beginning, you know, when we were going through these ideas and we were trying things, it was it was that kind of mindset change where you know, a lot of the team were thinking, oh, let's, you know, if we convert the club and it's club, clubbing comes back, we can do this. When clubbing comes back, we can do this. And it wasn't about when clubbing comes back, right? You need to be able to Think really, about the present or now. Exactly. exactly right. right. Because because when you're doing like a five-year plan in the future and you, you if, you're, if your nightlife brand is doing amazing well, you've got tons of revenue streams, I can talk five, about five years. I can do a 10-year plan if you want to, right? But we need to think about the now because if there's if you can't get through the now, there's not going to be a three to five year plan, right? So I think this was this was something that restating the present is is, is is very important, especially in this crucial time. Right, but how do you handle that tension? Where obviously, you know, when the when Zook is operating at full capacity, there's a lot more revenue streams than what probably is currently happening, right? Because F&B is not going to make as much money as nightlife. So as a big business or as a small business, how do you suggest someone can manage that tension? Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I recently last few years, I've, I have a lot of coping mechanisms now for, for stress. Um, something actually was quite interesting that I read in this, 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 this book I read recently was that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, or maybe 50 years ago, people basically did a lot of jobs, which were a lot kind of like manual labor, right? A lot more than now. So so one of the things that we find very stressful now is that there's no longer a break between your work and, you know, your free time. So, you're, you know, especially, you know, I guess the more senior you go, the more senior you go, your mind is always thinking about things, right? So it doesn't matter if you are, you know, you know, even the holidays now, I'm still thinking about work, you know, and I'm still expected to be on calls and, and you're always churning out, like, especially now, like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? How am I going to fix this from? How am I going to fix it from? So we're not giving ourselves a break at all, right? And one of the things that I've become very, very a big proponent of is meditation. I know it sounds cliche as well, but I meditate, you know, pretty much six, six seven times a week. Um, and I meditate for 20 minutes. And... 
And at the beginning, it's very tough. You know, if you do the first five minutes and it's like, oh my gosh, it's so long, right? But now 20 minutes just goes completely. And that's the time when I can take a break from just trying not to think about all these worries, you know, because last year, you know, at the beginning of last year, I was waking up in the middle of the night and I, my, my mind, the minute I just think about well, what am I going to do about it, my adrenaline would just shoot up and I would just yeah. be like, okay, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And I goes, what if that doesn't, what does that, you know, and, and the meditation part just allows me to kind of bring me back to the present and realize there are some things that are out of my control, right? So I deal with the things that are in my control and other stuff that are out of my control, you just got to let it almost let it happen and then you have to do it afterwards, right? And I think the meditation allows you to keep yourself in the present because so often in our lives, we're thinking about stuff that happened in the past, stuff that happens in the future, right? And we're not being able to kind of figure out, you know, where, what is, what needs our focus. Um, the other thing is that I obviously, I, um, I try to exercise a lot, you know, and, and I think the adrenaline, the endorphins definitely helps um, yeah. in terms of uh, just letting me release. And, and obviously the most important thing really um, last year is really my dog, you know. So I, I got a puppy last year. Um, uh, he's a, she's a half Shiba, half um, poodle. And for me sometimes... Like, Pharrell has been your anchor of support. Yeah. <laughs> she's the love of my life, to be honest. And, and right. you know, I, I, I'm looking a bit tired today because she, she, she had diarrhea on my bed at 4.30 in the morning last <laughs> yeah. night. So, so, um, the sacrifice uh, of love. Yeah. So, so, but but she's she's literally like sometimes all I think about is it doesn't matter what happens in the world, but as long as my dog looks at me the way she looks at me, I'm gonna be happy. You know, right. and, and I think uh, yeah. Right. I, I think I'm really aligned with you. I think what you, what you're saying or what I'm hearing from you is also finding something to make you happy. You know, finding some something to be grateful for, and with mindfulness or meditation. I'm really aligned with that as well because what you're doing is is you're taking cha- you're taking charge of your mental health, right? Because we can't control what happens to us externally, but we can control how we respond internally. Like I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's one of my favorites. She has she's a neuroscientist and has a lot of stuff about cleaning up the mental mess. And she's saying how you know through times of pandemic or through lots of frustration and anger. It's so important to turn all the toxic energy or worry or anxiety in our brains into and channel it externally, right? Whether that's going for a walk or whether or not you're a triathlete like Andrew, you know, but you don't have to do anything super, super tough or extreme, even if it's just running up and down the stairs. And ultimately, you know, I think we actually do have power as creatives. It's so, it's, I think not, not all of us, but but some of us, especially me, we tend to be so emotional, we react to situations. But yeah, I think I'm definitely learning through this period as well to just take a step back and remember that, okay, we have control over our response, even if we can't, we can't control what the outcome is. Yeah. And, and there's, no, there's nothing in this world that has made this more apparent than COVID, to be honest, because right. it is so out of our control. You know, right. it's, it's out of control for the present presidents around the world, right? I mean, there's nobody has control over this virus. So it's taken everyone outside that comfort zone. So unless you can kind of, you know, like you said, take that and realize that things are just out of our control, but we need to make sure we look after ourselves. So there needs to be some type of release and it can be anything. It could be sewing. It can be like, you know, watching Netflix. It can be like laughing with friends. It could be like walking a dog. You need to have a release because if you don't, it's just gonna, it's, it's, it you know, I think that's, um, yeah. Right. And that brings me to my last question, right? So so exactly, you're the 
fastest, most productive person I probably know with so much that you have on your plate at Zook and balancing everything in your portfolio. How do you draw the boundaries with work and play? So how do you create that that free time or that time of rest or mind space for yourself? Um, I, I mean, it sounds weird for someone who I guess also is not that brand, but I go to bed extremely early. So I go to bed around 9.30. Um, and I wake up around 5.36 and usually there won't be any calls at like 6 a.m. in the morning. So for me, that, that 6 to like 9 is my me time. So right. I'll spend like 20 minutes like rubbing my dog's belly and then after that I will meditate for like 20 minutes and then I'll exercise for an hour and a half. And I think that sets me up for the day, right? And, you know, for me it's also important that, um, you know, I'll get to work around 9 but I'll try to finish if I can around you know seven to eight and I might have calls at 10 but at least I go home have a nice meal and I just you know having like you said just having that time for yourself is really important and and you know in terms of mixing between work and play I think I've realized now that that Zook is entwined in my life so it's going to be there I mean I'm so emotional attached to the, to the brand now you know like I the people here, like my family, and now I've got like guys and and even five guys now, which is in the brand. Like they, they all have different families. I feel like you know around the world now, um, but and I've dedicated like myself at this point right to my career, right? And I and I, I understand that because there've been sacrifices. Like I've moved from you know Hong Kong to Singapore, and I'll probably move to Vegas for a short period of time, you know, this year or next year. So I I need to accept that that I've made that kind of commitment. I've made that sacrifice. Um, and, and just be okay with it, you know? And, and yeah, there are some parts of my life that, you know, I haven't got to yet, right? But, you know, everything in life is a balance and you have to, I think acceptance is also something which is extremely important that, that you accept that. Sometimes I need to have a do a call at like midnight, you know, if it's the US team, right? Sometimes I need to have a call at 6 a.m. if it's the, you know, president of Resorts Las Vegas, right? But I, I chose that, you know? If I didn't want to do it, I could, I could quit, but no. I chose that and that's my own decision to be able to do that, right? And accept it. Right. Wow. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm so happy to hear you've got such great habits. I think the healthy habits you have really, like you say, set you up for success and also to just give you more energy throughout the day. You're definitely an introvert <laughs> needing to sleep early and waking up early. But I yes, am. thank you so much. I loved uh, and yeah, I loved the conversation and learned so much from you. Okay, thanks, Estelle. I really appreciate it. Hey guys, thanks for listening today. What is one thing that you are now thinking about from this episode? Take some time to write it down and feel free to share it with me as well. By the way, it would help me so much if you can leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. Thanks guys and see you next time on The Purposepreneur.